Hey, everybody, this is Alex and Ben. Welcome back to another episode of the Oregon Bridge. I believe a good beat cop knows how to listen and try to understand where somebody's coming from. The police should always be accountable, should have always been accountable uh, to the communities that they serve. I think that the biggest thing we can do is to ensure that those who are serving us still remain a part of the community. And if we can just work through as opposed to fighting each other with the differences, you don't have to necessarily agree, but that's really what our country was founded on. Uh, it's really just a decision about how best to represent people. Hey everyone, thanks so much again for tuning in. We're really excited to have Oregon Representative Ron Noble join the podcast today. And Representative Noble represents House District 24 in the legislature. He's also running for Congress in Oregon's new 6th Congressional District, which at this point is probably considered one of the most competitive districts in the country since it's pretty swingy and there's no current incumbent. And Representative Noble has a 28 career year as a police officer and also served as the chief of police for the city of McMinnville. He's also known as a bipartisan and quite a deal maker in the legislature. And we get very, very deep into the policy details on a variety of issues. So certainly something to tune in on, especially if you're in the sixth district and you know, considering who you can vote for. So Ben, what do you think of the episode? Great episode. We should acknowledge that Representative Noble was an audience member, wrote to us and said, you got to have Rep Noble on. And so we did. So first, let this be a note to audience members. If you have a suggested guest that we should talk to, please let us know. Takeaways, a couple, just like some interesting things that he said that I thought were noteworthy. One, he talked about the four political parties in Oregon which are not the political parties you probably imagine. He's talking about the political parties of the legislature. So that was a funny, funny part of the episode. I think a key takeaway, something I want to pull out from the episode for people as they're thinking about 2022, Representative Noble said 2022 is not 2020. And I think that is his central thesis about why he can win. And to me, Titus, like this wasn't explicitly said, but what he's talking about when he's citing Virginia and New Jersey is like, Donald Trump is not on the ballot. This is not going to be a Trump election, which I think is key for him. Whether or not that will be true or not, we will see. But I thought that was interesting. Alex, you got very aggressive on uh, on China <laughs> in this episode. So listen to the end. This was one of the last topics. But Alex laid down the law with uh, the Chinese Communist Party, as he refers to them. Um, so it did, it did happen. I've, I've tried to get more foreign policy questions because as you know, listeners have heard it. And just for full transparency too, Ben and I have been trying to book someone uh, high up from the Trump administration or actually from the Biden administration. I'd love to have someone on there to kind of talk about the US-China competition as well as the, how the role that Oregon plays in that. I know I've talked about it in a couple of the episodes, but yeah, the most interesting thing about that response is he talked about working with China on climate change, and then also kind of pivoted to immigration, which I thought was was interesting. One thing I will note for viewers, Ben asked a great question of the GOP's plan with healthcare, which as all of you know, my views, I think that the GOP's views on healthcare are basically nothing. They, you know, <laughs> they didn't even repeal Obamacare. Like we couldn't even get that done. Like that, that was an easy one, right? All we had to do was get rid of it. One thing though, I will note that I thought was really interesting is he talked about pharmacy prescription benefit or prescription benefit manager reform. That's like a big no-no with the pharma industry. And that's also something that a lot of the House Republicans in Washington are actually talking about is reforming that as well. And that got Trump in a lot of trouble when he tried to reform that with the you know big pharma as well. So it's uh, really interesting to see kind of like right and left converging on that issue from different perspectives, but like 
still trying to get to the same goal in terms of lowering drug prices. Speaking of convergence of left and right, we do, we do spend some time talking about criminal justice reform. He's obviously a former chief of police, law enforcement officer. He was a critical legislator when it comes to passing a whole suite. He said there are 25 total bills that they passed on criminal justice reform. He partnered with Representative Janelle Bynum, who is a Democratic legislator, and they worked together to get these through. So I really I thought that was an enlightening, enlightening conversation about how he approaches politics and policy. Yeah. And I honestly took away from that episode. Uh, by no means do I think he's like far to the right, or I don't even know if he consider himself to be conservative. I think it's going to be very hard for Democrats, if he does make it out of the primary, to paint him as like a radical pro-Trump right winger or whatever. Very calm demeanor, doesn't have too many hot takes, like very wonky when it comes to the policy stuff. So yeah, in terms of if the, you know, as we've talked about, the red wave will come to Oregon, totally up in the air. I'm not fully convinced. I know some people are more excited than I am. But yeah, I thought that he would definitely make a great candidate heading into the general election for a swingy district like that. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens. All right, everyone. Thank you again for listening. Please remember to subscribe, leave a review if you can. And uh, we got one more episode before the uh, holiday break, but um, we are planning at this point to release an episode every week, including through the holidays. So if you are traveling via car or plane and you need something to listen to, you can listen to our obnoxious conversations with elected officials in Oregon on your vacations. But um, thank you again for listening and we hope you enjoy the episode. Well, hey, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode. Today, we are excited to bring you congressional candidate and state representative Ron Nopal. Representative, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you both for having me on the show today. Of course. And where are you at right now? Are you on the campaign trail? Are you home? Where's your current location? I'm home right at the moment. Yeah, campaigning never stops. And of course, we're getting ready for a a short legislative session. So uh, definitely staying busy. Okay, good. Yeah, it's it'll, it'll be a roller coaster, I imagine, until November. So uh, try, <laughs> yes. try to stay afloat with that. Great. Well, so, uh, so Representative, we know that you've had uh, a long career in law enforcement, which we're going to talk about a little bit later into the podcast. You're, you know, obviously serving in the legislature right now, and you're running for Congress. Give us a little bit of background, kind of how, how does it, you know, how'd your career in law enforcement move into politics? <laughs> well, <laughs> Uh, actually, I'm going to back up a little bit. How does how does a guy growing up in an engineering family end up in law enforcement? <laughs> We've got some some bigger questions to answer here, Representative. <laughs> no, uh, you know, I, I uh, uh, grew up in the area here in um, in Polk and Yamhill counties, and uh, actually went to college first to get a degree in engineering, and then had switched pre med like people do back and forth into different areas. And uh, one of my college roommates and I just talked about going to law enforcement, so. Uh, Opportunity opened up. Um, I had actually applied both in Washington County and then in Corvallis and got hired in Corvallis first and uh, spent 18 years down there. Absolutely loved most every bit of it. And that, well, actually, Ben, we have to ask a very partisan question first. Are you a duck or are you a beaver? <laughs> you know, I'm afraid I am a beaver. Oh, okay. And actually, we'll, I'm just, not afraid. we'll just end the episode right now. <laughs> I'm not afraid, but, but absolutely a beaver. I worked with the athletic department for a number of years. Uh, as a liaison with the police department. So then the next chapter of like your, I, I think you were retired from um, your position of chief of police and you were working for Linfield. And then someone goes to you and says, hey, you know, Noble seems like gullible enough. We could convince him to run for the legislature. <laughs> How did that yeah, happen? I, I did. I left Corvallis and became, uh, came to McMinnville to be chief of police and uh, spent eight years doing that. 
retired and was recruited to go to Linfield, which is now Linfield University. And I just have to draw this out. You know, as much as I love the Beavers, they still do hold the NCAA record for consecutive losing seasons. <laughs> but now I'm going to I'm going to just brag on the Linfield Wildcats because across all divisions, they hold the NCAA record for consecutive winning seasons at 65 this year. So uh, that is crazy. Point. So, yeah. And then while I was at Linfield, I was recruited by Jim Weiner, who uh, I had met, obviously, as police chief in the area and, and had several conversations with. And after a long discussion, several discussions with family and, and to figure out what that looked like, decided that we would jump all in. I'm sure your your family regrets the day where they gave you the thumbs up on, on that one. <laughs> Actually, no, um, I'm blessed with an amazing family. They're extremely supportive. It's uh, it's quite the blessing to and not only that, they're they're uh, most of them are healthcare providers. So I get a lot of good, good, reliable information from the practitioners. That's great. So my like background start off question is I have lots of friends in the legislature who are Democrats and you seem to be one of the rare folks in the legislature who's has really good relationships with folks on both sides of the aisle, well-regarded by folks on both sides of the aisle. We'll talk about some of the bipartisan legislation that you passed, but it seems, and, and maybe you can provide some perspective on this, but it seems to me from the outside looking in that it's actually pretty rare that there are folks who genuinely have meaningful working relationships and personal relationships um, on both sides of the aisle with the ultra conservative and the ultra progressive. So do you have a sense of, you know, what, what, what about you? Has that been an intentional focus of yours? Do you think it's just your personality type? And why do you think that's rare in Oregon politics today and national politics, I guess? Well, that's, that's a pretty involved question. Uh, <laughs> there's a couple of things that come to mind and I'm going to go back to my career in law enforcement. I believe a good beat cop knows how to listen and try to understand where somebody's coming from. They don't have to necessarily agree, but if they can understand how somebody's viewing a particular issue, be it a, a you know a very tense issue, very be it just an argument, there's some insight into how to actually work together to de-escalate the situation. Uh, so those are the, the tools that at least I've tried to develop over the years that I try to take to the legislature. You made a, a, a comment about on the outside looking in. I, I think that's that's key because on the outside, it looks worse than I think it is on the inside, hmm. um, where you, you have relationships and friendships. You don't necessarily agree with ideology. You may not even agree that there exists a problem, um, much less the, you know, the approach to solving the problem. Um, and, and there are a few areas where it's pretty op, you know, opposing. You, know, you get partisan votes, you get um, a lot of uh, mudslinging, but for most of it, there's still a, a lot of um, camaraderie working together. Um, it's, it is a little more difficult during COVID because uh, there are new people in the legislature that have been there a year that I don't know. Hmm. Uh, so I, I tend to spend more time with people I know, both in my own caucus and across the, the island to, into other areas. So it's, it is important, I think, to, um, to go back to, I mean, we talked about uh, you two at the podcast. I mean, it, you don't have to necessarily agree, but that's really what our country was founded on, um, is, is not agreement. It's the ability to dialogue and come to what's best for people, as opposed to uh, my position versus somebody else's position. So that's how I approach it. So, so on, a, on a mechanical level, on like a day-to-day -day level, 
do you, when you're building relationships with your colleagues, is it like, are, are these social things where like, I guess pre-pandemic you'd have them over for dinner or you'd go, you know, meet them for coffee, or is this like you, you're working on issues together in the legislature and that's primarily how you're getting to know folks. What does that, the relationship building look like for legislators? It's both, mostly it's working. There's a few times when I'll, when we'll get to go have lunch or coffee in the morning or something. Um, share a meal together in the, the members lounge. But but I find that it's more how you do it. It's it's um, what you do in your job is important, but how you do it can be as or even more important in order to facilitate a relationship. It's, you know, I think most people outside of politics don't realize that they have friends across the spectrum. Uh, mm. I have friends that have no involvement in politics. I have friends who are, are uh, very far left progressive you know, middle of the road Democrat, uh, middle of the road Republican and far right Republican, libertarian, you name it, uh, and family members that are split along those lines as well. And unless we're talking politics, we can enjoy a time of skiing, boating, fishing, hunting, and enjoy each other, which to me shows we have a lot more in common. Um, and if we can just work through as opposed to fighting each other with the differences, um, and I, I recognize there are some things that are fundamental. They may be moral issues. They may be ethical issues that we may disagree on. Um, but not everything we deal with is a moral ethical issue. Uh, it's really just a decision about how best to represent people and uh, ensure um, that, that people are taken care of in the state. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And um, now that we've got some common ground belt, we'll, I'll hand it to Titus to bring in the hot button divisive, uh, <laughs> the hard stuff. <laughs> and just for everyone's transparency, Ben has told me many times I'm his only Republican friend. I, I'm, I'm, I'm the one. So there's no more. It's just me. I've met my quota. I don't need any more. <laughs> uh, great. So, so Representative Noble, we're uh, with all your experience in law enforcement, we're you know excited to talk to you about different law enforcement, crime and justice issues that have uh, both been popping up across the country, but I think especially in Oregon. And uh, the thesis of our podcast is that you know national issues are heavily in influencing what's going on in local politics, and we think at least with this one, with what's going on in Portland, rising murder rates, rising crime rates, like Oregon is really front and center and getting a lot of outsized attention for this. Uh, but just to kind of start it off, you know, with your uh, with your background in law enforcement, there was a lot of calls in 2020, maybe even calls in 2018 to about uh, defunding the police or reforming the police, you know, cutting back on certain units and things like that. Uh, I'm just kind of curious with your, you know, with your background in law enforcement, what was your initial response to, you know, some of those calls for police accountability, defunding the police and things like that? You know, it's... Um... Different, different things. Sometimes we lump those words in together from reform to um, defund and accountability. Police should always be accountable, should have always been accountable uh, to the communities that they serve. Um, and, and if you're not progressing, then you're stale and you're not keeping up with society because society is always changing. So when you're talking about uh, reforming or improving, um, be it training, um, ways to assess character of officers, provide supports, wellness training. Um, you know, I've, asked, I've asked men and women to, uh, not intentionally, but by hiring them and asking them to do the job, they've been exposed to some pretty traumatic things. And mm -hmm. um, I, I think, I think the, the biggest thing we can do is to ensure that uh, those who are serving us still remain a part of the community. Uh, in my career, we've watched 
uh, community policing come around, uh, problem-oriented police, all kinds of different things. And, and the Northwest was a leader in that. And now it seems like we're trying to push the police and separate ourselves or separate the police from the community. We don't want them here. We don't want them in the schools. We don't. And, and sorry, just for people who might not understand, would you mind just defining just broadly community policing, kind of what that sure, looks like practically? Sure. sure. I guess I guess the biggest way to do it is um, is, is police interacting with the community, getting to know the community they serve, uh, understanding uh, the, the issues in the community, and dealing with not just um, murders and rapes and robberies, but dealing with livability issues. Uh, what makes this a great place to live and, and how the police can facilitate that, uh, not control it. Um, I always thought, you know, in McMinnville, uh, there's a lot of tourism and uh, the police department shouldn't be on the front lines of tourism, but it sure can impact tourism by how we treat people who visit our community uh, and, and really the states that way. So it's uh, community policing would be, um, you know, a school resource officer, the police officer is your friend. He's not someone to fear in, in breaking down some of those barriers. So that, that's what we went through, you know, in, in the 80s and the 90s. Uh, right now, there's there's kind of a push to, to separate police, and we only want them when it really gets bad. We don't need them to do other things. And I, there's a, there's a lot that's contributed to that over time. Um, you know, I, I, I'm going to pick on uh, just behavioral health issues. We we did the right thing by closing down our institutions and, and essentially just warehousing people. That That's not right. We need to integrate people back to the community and I'm all for that. But when we did that, we provided no community support, no supports in um, mental health, no supports in behavioral health, no supports at all. So the front line to deal with people in mental health crisis became the police. And um, that seemed to be okay with people for a while because we didn't fund anything new. We had a, a county mental health, we had some, some behavioral health specialists, but we, we added nothing to it as far as anything um, near the infrastructure of, of, the, of the institutions. So we're now at a crisis. We're a second generation into no mental health, behavioral health supports in the communities. Um, and the police have responded to all of these um, uh, tragedies, really, um, where people are in, in, in major crisis because we provided no supports to prevent the major crisis from happening. So um, I wouldn't call it defunding, but, but I also don't think the police officer should be the front line for somebody who's, who's in a mental health crisis. Mm. The, the police officer will, will always have a role in those those extreme crises where somebody's threatening um, to hurt someone else, you know, a, a definite, what we call an imminent danger to themselves or someone else. But if we provide the right supports, then police don't have to respond. And I, so there is a shift um, in, in how we, I guess the, sometimes in the capital, how we go upstream to prevent it from happening to begin with. Uh, so there, there is an opportunity there as we're, as we're dealing with, with police. Um, it's really important that we continue to move on. We develop skills, we new de-escalation. Society changed, generations changed. So we need to, to continue to increase our skill level. Um, at the same time, um, like I said, wellness training. And, and then we have, um, you know, and this, this one is, is near and dear to me. The police are really part of a larger group. They're just the most visible part. Um, one of the things that I get irritated about is when uh, 
be it uh, legislators, county commissioners, city councilors, separate themselves from the police department as if they're their fourth uh, branch of government. And um, I can tell you that um, no police officer out there can do a thing without the authorization of the legislature, the legislature who makes those laws, the city councilors that create city ordinances, and then authorize who can get hired and fired. So um, it, it really is a um, government at all levels uh, issue. It's not just a police issue uh, because uh, that's there, there's no authority to do anything without the people's authority through the legislative process or the, the, the city councils. We, we just had an interview with former Portland City Commissioner Steve Novick, um, obviously a Democrat, who um, said some similar things to you about how he, he drew a parallel between, he's like, there's a lot of times where firefighters have to respond to a call where you don't actually need a fire engine there, for example. And he drew a parallel there and said, there's a lot of times where police will respond to a call where you don't actually need an armed police officer there. You need some other professional. So he's talking about trying to modernize what it probably wouldn't be called a police force, but the the group of people who respond to emergencies look like. Um, and, and I think, were you going to say something, Representative? Well, I was going to say this is the, the, uh, the thing about emergencies is you really don't know what you need until you get there. Right. You know, so, so uh, you know, you've got a, a, a wreck on the highway. They've got a, an engine because there may be a fire. They've got an ambulance on the way. And until somebody gets there to say, no, 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 we don't need that. All of the, that apparatus is on the way. And, and kind of like, say, with a police officer, um, you know, if there's been some talk about having some intermediary, maybe someone that's unarmed, no uniform shows up or whatever else. Um, but you still don't know what you're getting into. So the, the hard part is, is, is the, um, the image right now of law enforcement um, is always extreme. And we don't know, need you here because there's nobody shooting a gun, but the skill level is much different. Being able to de-escalate, being able to, to provide medical assistance if necessary, being able to provide that, that in between, or to say, I don't, you know, I don't need more officers. I've got this one, or why don't we bring in a, a mental health crisis intervention person, and then we can back out and let them come in. So we, we just have to be careful because the nature of an emergency is we don't know until we get there really what, what the issue is and what's needed. That's a that's a great point. Um, but it kind of transitions into what I wanted to ask about, which is the the bipartisan reforms that you passed through the session. Mm -hmm. um, I think this was 2020. Was this was the last long session, wasn't it? 2021. Yes. So um, this wouldn't be an issue that you would expect could be bipartisan because it's a cultural touchstone issue. It's a political touchstone issue. Obviously, Donald Trump used this in his election. Democrats used um, have used the the opposing narratives in theirs. But in Oregon, you as a Republican, and I believe Representative Janelle Bynum, um, a Democrat, kind of came together and passed a suite of reforms on a bipartisan basis. So we'll talk a little about that. But first, can you explain what, what was actually involved? What were the policies that were passed in this suite of reforms? Well, I can talk about subjects because we had, you know, 16. And if you go back into the special sessions we had during uh, uh, 2020, we passed close to 25 bills that dealt wow. with some, some were repeats to, you know, tweak them, uh, but, but they dealt with um, wellness programs. They dealt with training issues of police officers. They dealt with, some of them was to bring Oregon 
into line with, with federal law. And let me give you an example there. Oregon's statutes regarding use of force and when an officer was allowed to use force, not allowed to use force, were so outdated that I never learned them in my career. And wow. I on for seven and a half years. We used federal case law because federal case law obviously made our, our statutes totally obsolete. So I didn't learn what Oregon law says about when you can actually use force on somebody. I used it based on Supreme Court, Circuit Court, and Oregon Supreme Court rulings. Um, so, so we brought stuff up to date. We, we, we brought our, our statutes up to date and continue to bring them up to date. Um, we brought in, and this was, I think this is important, is some sort of uh, accreditation for agencies. Your hospital that you go to is accredited. If you went to college, that was accredited. And uh, there are accrediting agents, accrediting bodies out there to ensure that agencies are following and keeping up on best practices. Uh, some of that change and growth that we talked about earlier. Uh, so, so now that is, is a law that will be implemented. Uh, we talked about use of force from crowd control. What is a riot? Our riot statute was developed decades ago and um, it created violations that um, had no it said an officer could cause something to happen, but there was no crime that actually was committed to allow that to happen. It was really inconsistent. So we tried to clear that. And it was a, it was a tough thing to clear up because obviously we had dealt with some riots. Um, protecting people's ability to protest, which is, which is a constitutional protection both federally and state, yet um, protecting also the safety of people who are protesting. So, um, and how do you respond to that? Um, is, is you know, what's necessary from a, uh, a riot control. And I think Portland was a good example of, of the issues we dealt with. There's, there's policy within the agency, there's state law, and then there's federal law. When everybody gets together, all those intermingle and, and you have different agencies enforcing different laws based on how they're authorized and what their, what their uh, mission is. Uh, so we tried to clear that up as well. So, um, and, and then we talked uh, briefly um, beforehand, but uh, hiring and then termination. Mm. There are some really, really good men and women who have poured their heart into serving their communities, but because of vicarious trauma, because of life and different things that happen, maybe 10 years in, they're no longer suitable to be uh, serving in that capacity. And that's not dishonorable. Uh, that's just the result that happens in the military you know, maybe the point man after a few years is no longer point. Maybe they're doing something else. Uh, you know, they move into a different assignment and, and that can happen in society. Maybe they're no longer a police officer. Maybe they move into something else. They teach, they're, they're a business executive. There's a, a lot of opportunity out there. So, um, but change is hard for people. So we, we uh, strengthen some of the uh, laws regarding just what, how high the bar is to, to stay in law enforcement. Um, so, instead, instead of the lowest common denominator with regard to um, uh, uh, labor law. It's a fascinating topic and I have several questions I wanna ask, but I'll just keep, I'll keep two follow-ups and then I'll hand it back to Titus. My first is, did you, when you were going down this road and basically, I mean, you were the point person on this legislation on the Republican side, did you have folks in law enforcement reach out, say, 
what the hell are you doing? Like, we don't like these policies or alternatively, why are you working with these people who are trying to defund us and who don't think that police should exist? Like, did you have to deal with folks on who, who saw you as an ally that, you know, felt like you were crossing over by, by working with uh, the other side or, or did that not show up? I'm sure there were people that thought that, but everything I worked on was in conjunction with the Oregon, uh, Chiefs of Police and the Oregon Sheriff's Association. There were a couple of things that probably the rank and file officers and the unions um, probably disagreed with, but we were all on the same page. Um, and really what made it unique, um, I, didn't, I didn't have to, I was not pitted, I did not have to vote yes on any bill, that I did not have the backing of my former colleagues as chiefs of police and sheriffs, and uh, most of the time district attorneys as well. Um, I mean, it was, uh, I, you mentioned uh, Representative Bynum. Uh, I, I just have to, to thank her for how willing she was to listen to the profession and try to, I mean, we knew change needed to happen. In fact, there was some opportunities that I took. You know, this, this is a window of opportunity to make changes in the way uh, we're able to do our jobs and uh, raise the bar a little bit and, and uh, provide better service and in some ways provide more resources. And at the same time, um, Janelle Bynum was able to provide some uh, relief to the way things have been going and, and change, change that direction. Uh, we had some national attention on us, as you mentioned yeah. earlier. Um, you know, not just Republican and Democrat, but, um, and I've said this in front of her, and who knows, we have an African-American woman and a retired white cop. And we were able to actually put the stereotypes aside and figure out what's best for the state of Oregon with regards to public safety, um, uh, minorities who have been maybe marginalized over time, um, and, and continue to improve uh, where we are as a state, as opposed to uh, overreact and, and have long-term uh, negative consequences. And that's overreact either side. She had people that didn't think she went far enough, mm -hmm. people that thought I went too far. So th that actually was my second follow-up was, um... Obviously, 2020 and the in the the disruption and uh, part part of that conversation was about reckoning with America's history of racism, and um, that was part of this this defund the police movement was actually rooted partially in very high profiles examples of racist acts um, or perceived racist acts or acts where African Americans or other people of color were victims of police officers. And as you mentioned, you're a white man. Um, Alex and I are both white men. Um, but I'm, I wonder if the process of legislating, which is a month long, you're talking to a lot of people, you're hearing personal experiences from people who disagree, who agree, et cetera. I wonder what, um, did, you, did you learn anything about the intersection of race and public safety or politics? Um, and I wonder if, if you did any reflection about like, your own identity and, and both as a, in terms of race, but also as a police officer and how you brought that into these conversations. I think you may have spoken about this at one time, but um, I was just curious about the racial dynamic of um, criminal justice in general and policing specifically and how that showed up in the legislative process. Sure, you know, I think that's a continual um, thought process, um, not just as a legislator, as a police officer. Um, well, I, I said this on the floor of the house. Uh, there's no way I ever will 
experience what a person of color, a male, female experiences. It can't happen. Um, I can listen, I can learn, I can under, try to understand um, to, so, that, so that I'm understand the decisions we make and how they will impact uh, people who have di totally different experiences. Um, I have some um, friends who have shared their experiences. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, they've been, you know, I have friends who have been friends for decades and um, who finally shared some experiences they had when, and they didn't share them to, with me when they happened. Mm. You know, it was, well, I never told you, but 10 years ago, this happened. Or, you know, even recently, I didn't tell you, but, you know, six months ago, this happened. And, um, you know, so it was, it was a wake up call that uh, we've, I have to think that we've made some progress, but we have a long ways to go. Um, if, if we go back to the, the fundamentals of, of how this country was founded, um, you know, that all men are created equal. You know, I, I think if, if just declaring it isn't enough, uh, it's been a couple hundred years and we still have work to do. Um, and uh, I, I think we need to not give up. The, the one thing that there's, there's always tension. And when something happens somewhere else in the country, um, I know, for instance, uh, 28 years in law enforcement, never once any time in my training was I taught to kneel on somebody's neck, ever. Not once. So, um, you know, there's there's 140 some odd police agencies in, in the state of Oregon. You you put that across the country and then each state regulates training and selection of police officers differently. Um, no different than the, the uniqueness of each state right now. Um, it's there's a, a similar there's a likeness, but but policing is different where you go across the country. Mm -hmm. And that's Part of it is not to get, um, um, not to be blind by, well, it could never happen here because we do it different. But the other is not to overreact with, um, we must be the same way, we must have the same training. Um, what I appreciated about the process, both with the governor's um, uh, task force on police training and the, the bipartisan commission committee to, to look at police training and use of force and then our, our uh, our committee, the Judiciary Committee, is, is that people were willing to take a look at what do we do in Oregon, what's the impact, and what can we do better, and how can we make sure that what's going on in other places never occurs here, in addition to how do we fix what is occurring here that's wrong and, and make some headway. Hmm. Thank you for that. That's fascinating, and I, I do think potential model for national conversations, um, but that might be a good transition for, uh, for Alex. Yeah, and, and Representative, I have <clears throat> just one more Oregon-specific uh, policing question, then we'll move on to, uh, to, to, your, to your run for Congress, and we have a bunch of policy questions to ask you. Uh, <clears throat> so Measure 110, uh, which was, you know, I think passed by 60% to 40%, basically, the statewide ballot initiative, uh, decriminalized drugs across the board. Uh, you know, also, uh, basically, from my understanding, it also, you know, it, it sort of removes law enforcement, not entirely, but almost entirely from uh, the intervention process in general. And I know that a lot of people on the right were specifically upset about this reform because it basically it didn't entirely, but, you know, a lot of the ways threw away with drug courts. 
uh, which at least folks on the right think is pretty successful when it comes to enforcement in terms of helping you know drug addicts uh, avoid jail and become you know basically come back to society and, and you know as producing members. Curious of your perspective on Measure One Ten uh, as a former police chief. Well, I, I can tell you at one point it was uh, you know I was not for in favor of legalizing marijuana. Um, it's it. This is going to sound strange. Now that it's legal, I'm fully supportive of, of what we're trying to do and, and ensure that it's an agricultural cop like anything else. Um, with 110 and some of the other other uh, things that that's done, I think what we've seen is really um, there's no there's no with, without a change. And there, I know we're going to be looking at some changes this session. Um, teeth is the wrong word, but there, there's there's no motivation for anybody to seek treatment if they have a problem mm. and to, to look for help, uh, it, it is pretty much out of the court system. The, the other thing 110, I think has brought us about, brought about if you look at what's going on in Southern Oregon and, and I can't blame it all on 110, but Southern Oregon right now has a crisis going on with cartels and, uh, and marijuana grows, human trafficking, uh, both human sexual trafficking and human labor trafficking. Um, if there's a, I guess, a, something to take away other than the details and logistics of trying to fix 110, um, and the legislature's a little bit limited because it, it was voted on by the people, um, you know, so it's, the, but I think the message there is we have to be careful that if we legalize something, that doesn't mean that bad things won't happen anymore, um, that the crime will go away. Um, no, no different than if, if we, make a law against something that somehow that's going to stop happening. I mean, if that were the case, there would be no more murders because we've had that law for a long time. Um, so, you know, there's, we just have to, to truly take a look at what, what the unintended consequences are uh, as best we can try to foresee what, what may happen. And sometimes you can't, you just have to fix it um, and, as you move forward. So I think that's what's happening with 110. I'm, um, my, my largest concern is really not as a police officer, it's for people who are not getting help that need help, um, either through behavior health and addiction recovery, um, especially at a time when we're pretty much isolated still because of the pandemic that we're dealing with. Mm. So we wanna transition, you can take off your state representative hat and put on your congressional candidate hat. Um, the, the basic question you have to ask every candidate, but I think particularly candidates who decide to run for Congress, which is the least popular institution in America, is why do you want to run for Congress, Representative Noble? <laughs> so, you know, we were talking about all the reasons right now. What we're dealing with in this state from jobs in the economy, and, and really, I mean, we've, we've got some of the lowest uh, employment, unemployment right now, but we have so many jobs that are unfilled. We can't get, you know, the food prices are going up, gas is going up. We can't buy stuff for families for Christmas because it's sitting out on a ship in the ocean. There are, there are a bunch of issues economically. Um, transportation and infrastructure is an area that I've, I've spent time in legislature. We obviously have infrastructure needs um, and transportation needs. Public safety, policing, criminal justice is something. Healthcare is another committee I serve on in trying to ensure people have access uh, better access to more affordable health care and, and what that looks like in systems. That's been an issue of the federal government, well, for a long, long time. Um, it's been debated for a number of years. 
you know, and then human services <clears throat> with Build Back Better and ARPA and how the states are working. How do we give somebody a hand up, walk alongside them so they can get back on their feet through this pandemic and through the economic crisis, as opposed to just throwing money at it and then the money disappears and nobody's any better off than they are today before we started the money. So it's, you know, essentially, my goal is to do the same thing I'm doing now. Um, I would say that on the outside looking in, it looks more polarized than the state capital does. But um, in talking with people, and I absolutely have to believe that we can get stuff done in a different way. I think people are tired of extreme bickering, that we can have ideological differences and come together even in Congress, uh, not just you know in, in the, the state capital. And that's why I'm running. Uh, thank you for that. My, my follow-up, and then we're going to do some, some uh, semi-rapid-fire policy uh, questions, yes. is you, I think you do occupy a very unique space in, um, in the Oregon legislature as, uh, I don't, dealmaker probably isn't the right term, but someone you can put in a room to, to draft complex policy. At the federal level, you'll be, if you, assuming you win this race, you'll be entering into a, a Republican caucus that seems to be um, a lot more polarized than at least uh, Leader Drazen's caucus was in Oregon, where you've got like these rigid expectations of supporting Donald Trump and you don't break with the caucus on votes and Nancy Pelosi and her people are evil and we're gonna use them in campaign ads to defeat our opponents. And it just seemed like emphasizing your point of like the, the polarization seems like a degree worse than it is in Oregon. And so I wonder if you've thought like, does that, do you have to change how you operate at the national level to be able to survive in that kind of environment, the way that you talk or campaign? Have you thought about like what the transition to the, to the national stage and to a different, you know, political caucus than you have in Oregon, what that might mean for you and how you approach these things? I think what it means for me is actually using the skills I have to observe and watch. Um, to try to understand and then figure out how to navigate. Um, you know, you can't take too long to do that because you only have a couple of years that you're up for re-election. Right. But, but that's the same way in the state house. You, you sit back, you watch, you analyze, and you figure out where you fit in. And um, you asked if I was going to change. No, um, I, I, we didn't get into this part of my background, but uh, I've got five kids, nine grandkids. Um, no, I, I have to look them in the eye when I'm done and say that I'm the same person that, that raised you and, and that, you know, um, that you trust your grandkids with. So it's, uh, so it's, it's, I, I understand that dynamic, but, but let me throw this back. Um, I, I suggest 2022 is a different world than 2020. Mm. Um, and Virginia, New Jersey has, has given me hope that that is the case that, um, there are, um, I, there are people all across the spectrum. I mean, the Democratic Party is split, and in a lot of sense, the Republican Party is split. Um, even in the in the state capital, I used to, I still like to refer to it as four political parties: it's the far left, the mid left, the mid right, and the far right. And, and that happens at, the, at in D.C. as well. Um, I I think, um, and I have to be this way. And this is just the way I am. I'm optimistic that we will. At some point, we'll still have the loud voices at both extremes, and that that's fine. That's part of the process. Um, but 
but there's a rational group in the middle um, that will 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 still get together and form policy. And, you know, and it, you can't discount the extremes because sometimes they're they're yelling for a reason and they need to be heard and they may have a, a good idea, but but it's the collective that makes makes us move forward. And um, I, I just have hope that, um, and, and really a lot of uh, encouragement through what I've seen so far in the country that we're going to move in the right direction. Mm-hmm. The party's gonna heal, um, and specific, you know, Republican party. And I'm gonna guess that the Democratic party will as well. I mean, we watched a, essentially a stalemate, a showdown, which is between Democrats while Republicans are waiting for Democrats in the House to make a decision. So, you know, it's not unique to just Democrat versus Republican, um, but we're going to have to start working together as a group of people to do what's best for all of us. So you did say that 2022 is a different year than 2020, uh, which I'm hopeful for in one very big way, which is with COVID. Uh, I'm not particularly optimistic about that, as uh, I'm sure you've probably been following the news, the Omicron variant, or however you pronounce it, uh, is on the rise. If I'm not mistaken, New York City actually just recorded their highest daily uh, number of cases on record. Uh, Cornell University recently also went back to online learning after you know 900 people uh, got COVID who are who are vaccinated. And uh, the interesting thing. Uh, about this to me is like, uh, there's been polling that shows that it's not just Republicans that are exhausted with sort of the life changes in COVID. It's also a majority of Democrats that are, uh, they literally define the poll as exhausted, you know, who obviously people define that a little bit differently. Uh, if you were in Congress or, you know, if you got to write legislation, kind of make the rules around COVID, uh, what's, what's kind of your, your approach to it? Like, do you think that uh, you know, we're being too cautious right now that like we should get rid of mask mandates, there shouldn't be vaccine mandates and things like that. Uh, do you think that we're not being cautious enough? We should, you know, go back to lockdowns. What's kind of your approach to, to COVID? So, so I told you that my family are healthcare providers. <laughs> so you better have a good answer on this. <laughs> it better be a flawless answer. <laughs> <laughs> it won't be flawless. It won't be flawless. But, um, you know, I've got a son who's in charge of, of the vaccination process that uh, where he is. And, um, so it's, you know, I, I understand the, the dynamic. I, I think we're going right at the very beginning, Alex, you said, just waiting for this to get over. I don't think we're going to get over. I, I think where we are is where we are. We've got to figure out how to adapt and, and start interacting with people again. I think the masks, uh, we should probably look at it more like Japan does and, and some other countries where, um, I choose to wear a mask because maybe I go up with a cough and just out of, out of courtesy for you, because I'm going to be around people, I put a mask on. It's not a sign of defiance or compliance. It's a matter of just common sense and being courteous. Um, you know, uh, vaccination, I live in a multi-generational household. Some of us are vaccinated and some of us aren't. So um, it, it's just understanding um, different people's opinions. I have to 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 just mention uh, the the Democratic governor in Colorado, who said, "Okay, enough." Now, I I don't know know that I like everything the way he said it. It's almost like, "Hey, if you're not vaccinated, too bad." Um, but you know, it it's almost it, it's almost like he did what Christy Noem did and said, "Hey, here are the rules, or here's here's the dangers, here's what all this." Here's all the information. 
you're adults, you make up your minds. Um, and um, I think we need to get back to encouraging people to be civil and understanding that it's okay if people are, are fearful and it's okay that people aren't fearful. All you have to do is have some respect to show some kindness to one another. And if I'm around people who are fearful, fearful mask up. If I've got a, a cough around people who uh, are not fearful, why wouldn't I wear a mask to protect them? So it's, uh, I think we've made it too much about politics. If, if you want to know if you should get vaccinated, go ask your doctor. Well, so that to me, what you said, I find compelling. And I need to look up um, Governor Polis's remarks to find out what he said. But I was listening to the governor's press conference today with OHA, and they were talking about how their modeling is projecting that Omicron is going to lead to higher hospitalization rates than even at the peak of the Delta surge. Um, and how that's going to force hospitals to make decisions about who gets care and when, um, which is really a terrifying thought. And so that's that's the balance that like part of me is like, you know what, if you're unvaccinated and you're choosing not to be, that's, you know, that's up to you. But then the impacts, their actions are going to impact people like my dad, who's done everything right, doesn't leave the house often, got vaccinated, got the booster, always wears a mask when he goes out. And if he and has some other underlying health issues, and if he has to go to the hospital and he can't get care because there's a bunch of people who think that the vaccine is a microchip and blah, 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 like there's it's impacting more than just the people making the decision. So that's the piece where I want like, doesn't there have to be some sort of um, and I guess you're sort of trying to get to this, like the sense of community and understanding about your actions impacting people beyond just yourself. It's more than just an individual liberty or individualism question. Well, there's government, I mean, truly at its, at its core, government exists to, to find that line between personal liberty, totally unlimited, unlimited. You, you just do whatever you want, and, and the collective good. You know, be it we build a wall around the city and we hire a night watchman and we make sure that uh, we're not victims to natural selection be between something else that's that's more vicious than we are. Um, and then we talk about if we're living in community, what's important? Be laws, behavior in certain areas. I mean, there's that that is the question. That is the role of government. Um, so how do we define this one? I think at some point we've actually tossed all of those decisions to government. There used to be just common courtesy. And it's almost because of, of the, the pandemic that courtesy now becomes an executive order or legislation um, as opposed to, and, and like hurting feelings. We're, we're legislating whether or not people's feelings should get hurt. Well, what happened to just being a courteous person and kind um, as opposed to someone telling me what I, can't, what I can and can't say? So there's, I mean, it's, I'm going off on a tangent, but really we're, we're not gonna get rid of the pandemic. Uh, we've got the common cold, we've always had the common cold. This is like that on steroids. It's not polio that we're gonna eradicate. Um, if anything, I think uh, COVID and this COVID pandemic has exposed uh, a lot of areas of weakness that either areas that we've neglected that have become apparent in Oregon, be it uh, our, our lack of readiness to re respond to unemployment or renter assistance or being able to implement policies, um, but and it's not just in government; it's it's exploited everywhere else. So we're going to have to figure out what life looks like moving forward. How do we how do we navigate this? Do we live isolated because government tells us to, or do we figure out how to work as a free society together and have enough common courtesy to work with each other to move forward? 
and continue to innovate and move, have relationships, interact with people more than just over the screen. Yeah, no, that, I think that that, that makes sense. And uh, Representative, one question, a uh, foreign policy question I wanna ask you about is, uh, is, is China. And uh, I've been pretty clear both in my writing and just kind of on this podcast, I think where we see the Chinese Communist Party today is really close to where we saw Nazi Germany in the 1930s. And uh, I think that, you know, obviously the U.S. and China have tensions in a number you, of places. Wait, can you explain what you mean by that? Because that was a bold statement that I have never heard you make. Tell, tell me tell me more about what, what you mean by that. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, in China, they've, you know, with the amount of mass surveillance, both on their own U.S. citizens, but not U.S. citizens, Chinese citizens, uh, which, of course, they also are spying on Chinese citizens in this country, too, uh, with the ongoing genocide of Uyghur Muslims, with the ongoing persecution of Christians. And I mean, uh, there's just been horrible instances, too, with other religious groups with organ harvesting and things like this, which, of course, uh, some of this gets painted in the media, and I think it's being painted more often, sort of as tensions have ramped up. But I think that uh, there's a lot of things that over the years will be uncovered that the Chinese Communist Party has done that people are going to look back and say, you know, this was absolutely despicable, uh, as I think people are starting to see today. Uh, but the question that I want to relate specifically to Oregon, because we could talk about U.S.-China relationship, national security, all that sort of stuff, is uh, so Nike and com companies like Nike and Adidas have gotten in a lot of heat, both from members of Congress as well as from activists locally for uh, I would say saying nice things about the Chinese Communist Party and China in general. Uh, and I think it's, you know, sort of despicable basically how they cozy up to the party, but their sort of talking point is uh, basically, you know, if you don't toe the line of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, they're going to attack you economically. And that hasn't just happened with Nike and Adidas. It's also happened with Oregon farmers. It's also happened with Oregon ranchers. Uh, the Communist Party is not afraid to use economics and their economic leverage to hurt Oregon businesses. Uh, so I'm just kind of curious of like, you know, if you were a member of Congress, obviously advocating for Oregon industries, uh, how do you think that, you know, we can basically stand up against China from both their economic bullying, uh, and, you know, also standing up for, from a human rights perspective too? It's going to, there's, there, boy, that's, it's a simple question. It's not, yeah. Oh, it's 30, the easiest one. <laughs> 30 seconds or less, please. And you only have 15 uh, seconds. <laughs> so, so first I think, I think it's gonna it's gonna impact us on a bunch of levels. We have to figure out um, how much reliance we're gonna continue to have on China, um, and, and even from a, a climate change uh, situation, you know, we can be green here, and then we're going to buy goods from countries, um, and through the manufacturing of the goods that we're buying, we're actually creating more carbon and and hurting the environment more. So I think we've got to we we it's going to be inconvenient and it's going to hurt, but we've got to figure out really how reliant we're going to be. Uh, the other businesses are apolitical. Um, you know, it may, it may be the common, I mean, in Oregon, it's like, okay, biz, business is for Republicans, labor's for Democrats. That's not the way it is. Businesses are apolitical. Businesses will support whoever is going to help their businesses succeed. And um, that's just the nature of business. So, uh, we're going to have to figure out what our role is in in how that works on a worldwide scale, um, and which plays into the larger question of what's the U.S.'s role now um, throughout the world. 
Um, it took a very strong role in one, and it seems like I go back and forth where we need to be there and we need to fight communism, you know, and then we back up because people here say, no, we need to stay out of our, out of other countries. We need to figure out what is our role? Is it a, a passive role? Is it very active? Is it only when an emergency uh, exists or are we constantly uh, uh, engaged? We, we have a lot of turmoil right now in the United States, but putting this in perspective, I'm not trying to bring up a whole nother topic, but, um, but I am, uh, you know, what, what is it about this country where someone is willing to risk their lives instead of waiting 20 years to get into this country legally to risk their lives crossing a border where they could be killed, they could be, or, and then they're going to live in a, in a country that's going to marginalize them and punish them. And they have to stay essentially in hiding throughout the rest of their lives. And in that life is so much better than what they're leaving. You know, mm -hmm. we're just going to have to figure out how do we treat people here and how do, what is our role throughout the world? Um, and, and is that, uh, I think we have a, a collision if, you know, if the climate is truly changing, like some people say it is, um, the United States is not the one that we have to worry about. So what is, what is our role there? Uh, so I think, I think we're going to go through a time of transition. Uh, I don't know if it's very my generation, uh, hopefully it's sooner than later of, of what is the United States? Uh, how does it fit into a, how sovereign are the states, but what is our role collectively in the world again? Uh, how, does that, how does that work? Well, uh, Representative, thank you for, uh, we, we covered a lot of ground here uh, in this podcast and we appreciate your indulgence. Um, my final question before we close is, uh, you talked a little bit about healthcare and you served on the healthcare committee and you've clearly got healthcare ties in the family. The GOP is notoriously uh, famous for lacking a healthcare plan. During the Trump years, the healthcare plan was essentially repeal Obamacare, repeal Obamacare, repeal Obamacare. Um, it never really happened. And uh, which I was going to say, we also failed at even doing that. <laughs> right. Which, you know, I'm, I'm uh, grateful for the incompetence sometimes of uh, national Republicans. But uh, when you think when, when you think about, you know, I'm not talking about like large scale reform, of, but are there are there one or two key policies that you'd like to bring to the federal level as a congressperson in the realm of healthcare um, to improve care, lower costs? Um, that would help Oregonians. So healthcare is an interesting thing. I, um, my son-in-law is from Ireland, um, and my my grandson was born over there. And uh, you know, when we're talking about the price of healthcare and accessibility, I, I think it's safe to uh, safe to say, and in a lot of cases, primary care can be better or much more accessible, and at least more affordable outside of the United States. But if you have the need for a specialist, if you have a heart attack, if you've got something going on, if you've got cancer, you want to be in the United States because we have specialists. Um, and, and I don't know how, um, how that drives the price of healthcare yet. Um, I do know after sitting on some task forces of uh, affordable healthcare and, and it's a very convoluted supply chain if you're talking about delivering healthcare. It's not manufacturer, wholesale, retail, customer. Um, there's so much back and forth, especially through the pharmaceuticals. Um, there's, there are opportunities that we can take to, to 
reduce the cost of pharmaceutical drugs that and some involve pharma, some involve actually this, the chain in between, between wholesaler, the, the pharmacy benefit managers, the insurance, uh, and then pharmacies themselves that, that, uh, that will take care of, of those who are needing medical assistance. And then, you know, there's, there's this back and forth trying to keep the prices lower. Uh, by doing that, insurance companies will come out with what they call step therapy, where a physician's going to say, I, I'm going to prescribe A to you. And the insurance company say, well, we're not going to pay for A first. We want you to try C first. And then if that doesn't work, we're going to have you try B. And then if that doesn't work, we'll go ahead and give you A. And, um, you know, I go to a doctor because I want to know what they're going to prescribe, not what the insurance company is going to prescribe. So there's some things there that is, that is in place to be a cost-cutting measure, but it's also a healthcare access measure. So there's some things we need to balance out. Uh, pharmacy, pharmaceuticals is something that I've, I've been involved with uh, for the last several years. The, the transparency bill, uh, which was a, a four-party bipartisan bill with Rob Dulles, <laughs> Uh, Steiner Haywood, myself, and Dennis Lithicum. <laughs> four uh, parties. <laughs> those are the four extreme parties. So, you know, and, and we've had some success simply by shedding sunlight. We've, we've seen um, the price of drugs slow down as far as the, the amount of the increases. Um, we, we may have some, some ways to go. I'm not a price control person, so I don't know that we'll, we'll have more bipartisan um, Stuff. I think there's some things we can do with PBMs um, to uh, to change the way uh, pharmaceuticals are delivered, which will which will then uh, make them cheaper. the The other thing with healthcare, just in general, that the discussion that's going on in, in Oregon is universal healthcare or single payer healthcare. And um, you know, I will admit to you, healthcare is not a free market. Um, as soon as, I mean, it's, it hasn't been a free market for a long, long time. I think we need to introduce a free market concept, but at the same time, if we go into a single payer or a uh, government provided healthcare, um, the fear that I have is that it's Medicaid for everybody. And if Medicaid works, then, then maybe legislators should be on Medicaid. You know? <laughs> and, and that's not going to happen. So it, you know, it's, I, I, you know, we have, it's a, it's a, I'm hesitating because it's a very complex problem that I don't, any one person understands the whole system. There are a lot of people that are experts in a lot of parts of the system, and we just have to get the right people in the room to understand how this action impacts this action. And, uh, and I'm not opposed to just stripping it back down and trying to build something that works better. Um, the uh, the idea of buying drugs pharmaceuticals out of Canada because they're cheaper, you know, you can buy the same widget in Kansas that you do in New York City. It's going to be cheaper in Kansas, but if you buy them all in Kansas, you know what the manufacturer is going to do? Raise the price. Price. Lower the price in New York City. They're going to raise the price in Kansas. So, um, you know, pharmaceuticals. We're talking about a worldwide market, and um, a lot of it is priced based on affordability within particular countries. Uh, we do, through what we pay, help put drugs in other countries more accessible and cheaper. And uh, so if, if we start changing that dynamic, uh, it will have an impact around the world. Mm -hmm. So 
Now, all that just to say it's, it's complex. I think we need to continually focus on accessibility and affordability. Um, even with Obamacare, we still have problems with accessibility. Yeah, well, thank you for that, uh, Representative. And we know we uh, threw a swirl of topics at you with about 15 <laughs> minutes. So uh, you are well prepared for the debate stage I hope, uh, after showing up at this podcast. So. I probably could have given shorter answers too. I apologize. No, no, no. That's the, no, we, no. that's why we love the podcast format is like you don't have to do. I feel like people will get, a, get to actually know you pretty well after hearing, you know, you talk for an hour versus, you know, a five minute segment on KGW where you're kind of trying to give the best scripted answer you can. Um, so we appreciate you indulging the format for sure. Yeah, and thanks so much again for, for taking the time to join us. Uh, before we let you go, uh, where can people follow your campaign if they want to volunteer for you, maybe make a donation, see where you stand on other issues? Uh, now's the time to throw out all the social media campaign website you can think of. Just nobleforcongress.com. Perfect. That's an easy one to remember. Noble for Congress. All right. Okay. Well, uh, uh, Representative, thank you again for coming on, and uh, we wish you luck. And you know, maybe if you if you get to the general election, we'll have to we'll have to have you back on the pod. I would enjoy that. I appreciate. <laughs> it. All right. Thanks, everybody. Right. See you next thanks. time. Thanks.